On this episode of the Harrison Vatling Podcast, we're going on Nick Elam, the founder and creator of the current format we're going to see at this weekend's NBA All-Star Game, the Elam End. We're going to talk about how he came up with the idea for it, it being implemented in the TBT, how it became a thing in the NBA All-Star Game, and more with his career with Nick Elam. So tune in, sit back, relax, and listen to a great interview with Nick Elam, starting right now. Joined on the podcast by the founder of the Elam Ending, the assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership at Ball State, a Dayton alum, Nick Elam. Nick, welcome onto the podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you. So we're going to be talking all things Elam Ending here with Nick Elam. So for an average basketball fan who has never heard of the Elam Ending, who loves basketball, explain what it is and the idea of it. Sure. So the idea of the Elam ending is not to change basketball. Really, it's to do the opposite and preserve a more natural style of play through the end of every game. And so the idea in a nutshell of the Elam ending is that you play most of the game with a clock and you play the last part of the game without a clock. And the, the primary aims of the format are to eliminate the deliberate fouling strategy that we see so often by the trailing defense, to eliminate the stalling strategy that we see so often by the leading offense, uh, to preserve a higher quality of play and get rid of sloppy and rushed possessions down the stretch and to provide greater hope for late comebacks because so many times the uh, end of the game, the, the outcome is very predictable, even with slim margins, and to provide more memorable game-ending moments. And so when you say, well, we're going to play the last part of the game without a clock, you know, you have, there's two, two main things you have to figure out is, well, when do you shut off the clock and uh, what do you play to? So the, the settings vary based on the league or the event. Uh, I don't know if you want to focus on TBT. I don't know if you want to focus on uh, the NBA All-Star Game or, or, or something different. So, so you tell me, which one would you, uh, would you like me to give the settings for? You can give the settings for both, Nick. Sure. So the, the, the format has been implemented most widely at TBT, the basketball tournament. And so there uh, they shut off the clock at the four minute mark of the fourth quarter. And then they set a target score equal to the leading team score plus eight. So for example, if the score is 65 to 60 at that four minute mark, we're going to shut off the clock. We're going to play the rest of the game without a clock. First team to get to 73 wins the game. And again, the idea is that, okay, if you've got the lead, you can't uh, just stall and try to run out time. You have to keep playing assertively to get to that target score. If you're behind and you're on defense, you don't have to foul and hand away free points at the free throw line. You can continue to rely on defensive stops. Uh, That whole combination of factors makes the outcome of the game less predictable. It makes late comebacks more likely. And the game's going to end with the swish of a net. So it makes, again, it provides that memorable game-ending moment. Now, at the NBA All-Star game that we'll see here on March 7th, uh, they use a different format where, and this is this is a format that I explored long ago, going back to 2007, where you would actually get rid of the clock for the entire fourth quarter of a game. And so they will set the target score equal to the leading team score plus 24. That is to honor Kobe Bryant. And so there will be a, a longer stretch, certainly uh, where in the NBA All-Star game where there is uh, an untimed play. So you mentioned how the TBT, they add eight points to the final four minutes. Uh, how and where did you come up with that number? 
So interesting. So I'm actually going to back up and, and talk about a different level of play, which is men's college basketball, where kind of the numbers work out a little bit uh, easier there. So for men's college basketball, even though it's never been implemented there, that is where most of my research over the years has been. And so for men's college basketball, I recommend setting the target, stopping the clock at the four minute mark of the second half and setting the target score equal to the leading team score plus seven. Now where that comes from is a combination of factors. One is that that four minute mark, that happens to be the last media timeout in men's college basketball. So that makes for a natural transition stage of the game. Now also, Around that four-minute mark, that's where you would normally see teams with a medium-sized lead start to stall, slow down, and, and play very passively and really try to manipulate the clock. Now, you can't um, – now, we really don't see that fouling strategy until about the last minute of the game, but you can't wait too long to shut off the clock. or you are just going to run into the same problems leading up to that. So you have to build in an un, enough of an untimed cushion. So I think that four-minute mark is the way to go. Now, if you think about it, again, for men's college basketball – if you're cutting four minutes out of a 40-minute game, you're essentially taking out 10% of the game, and now you need to find some way to add 10% of it back. Well, if you look at men's uh, college basketball scoring rates, it's about 70 points per team per game. So 10% of that is seven. So that's where the plus seven recommendation comes for men's college ba basketball. Well, let's now look back at TBT. So that was our initial uh, thought was, well, let's try those same settings for TBT under four minutes and a plus seven setting. The thing about TBT is that it's, it doesn't have a, a, as much of a rich history. There, there isn't uh, nearly as many games to look back and, and uh, you know, look at scoring rates and things like that. So it was a little bit of a shot in the dark when we first implemented this at TBT. So we tried this, uh, the, the under four minute and plus seven setting in 2017 and 2018 at TBT, we found that the games, the, the final stretch were ending a little bit quicker than we had anticipated or hoped because we want to get about four minutes worth of game time during that stretch. So in 2019, we bumped that up to plus eight and we've stuck with that every since, ever since for TBT. So again, we're getting much closer to four minutes worth of game time during that final stretch with just that small adjustment. So again, for any kind of league or event, there you have to do a little bit of experimentation and try to find that right um, right setting for that particular league or event. So you mentioned in 2007, you initially came up with the idea for the Elam ending. How, where, when, what was the initial ideas that you had and what have you built on since? Yeah, you could even back up farther than that because actually in 2004, I was a senior at the University of Dayton and I was a big basketball fan, lifelong basketball fan. And so were my housemates. And we were sitting around on Elite Eight Sunday in Mar during March Madness, you know, watching uh, a really exciting game. It happened to be Duke and Xavier, you know, just a, a really competitive, high level game. Uh, just come to a crawl and just come to this uh, really, uh, you know, boring finish, you know, just didn't even look like basketball where Xavier's slim deficit just seemed totally that they had no, no chance to overcome it. And they, and they didn't, they never, they never were able to overcome that slim deficit. So we're all looking around at each other thinking, you know, there's gotta be, you know, it's so, first of all, it's so weird that the game changes so much down the stretch and, and frankly changes to an inferior brand of basketball. And we're, and we're thinking, you know, there's, there's got to be some way to address this, but what can you do? Now, at the time, we threw around these different ideas. None of them were viable. Our, our main ideas are the same ones you hear even now. 
which are, well, you know, if you just punish the fouling team more harshly, well, that's going to take away the, the idea to foul. But again, that wouldn't work because again, now you're just taking the trailing team's only option of fouling, which isn't a very good option to begin with and making it even less appealing without giving them a better alternative. And so that would just lead probably to more fouling and fewer comebacks than what we already see. So we tabled that discussion. None of us had a, a solution for it, but again, you know, I've, a few years later, in 2007, after we'd all moved on with our lives, the light bulb kind of went on for me. Um, what, I remember the day. I remember it was March 10th, 2007. I was watching an ACC semifinal game. It was North Carolina State and Virginia Tech. Same kind of thing, you know, just highly intense game that just was this excruciating and boring finish. And that's when the light bulb went on. The, well, you know, maybe if you just you – know, all these different phenomena, these unfortunate phenomena that we see late in the game, they're all attributable to the game clock. Everybody's – trying to manipulate the clock in some way. And I thought, well, maybe if you just got rid of the clock and, you know, found, found some other way to, to uh, base the duration of the game, maybe that would address those. So that was the start of it. Now, at first, I thought, well, okay, there's got to be something I'm overlooking here. There's got to be some fundamental flaw. Um, so when I first began exploring this, it was trying to figure out, well, what's wrong with this notion but the more that I researched it, the more that I scrutinized it, the more that I really began to believe in it. And uh, yeah, it, it, that project still has never ended. And so where did you experiment it for the first time? Because you came up with the idea in 2007. We didn't see it in the TBT until 2017. So you had to have experimented it somewhere. Where was it? Well, when you say experiment, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't run any leagues or events. I don't, I don't run a basketball league. So that was the thing. That, so that was the toughest part was, well, first of all, again, it took, it took weeks and months in 2007 for me to convince myself that this idea was, first of all, necessary and that it was sound and that it, you know, that it could uh, overall be an overall benefit to the game. Uh, so that that was, that became kind of an all consuming uh, research project of 2007. But once uh, you know, by the end of the summer of 2007, once I convinced myself of this idea that it had merit, then I started reaching out to people in the basketball world. And, you know, you think about any type of stakeholder in basketball, I was reaching out to them, you know, trying to propose this idea and trying to find someone who, who had the, the means to experiment with this idea uh, in, a, in a viable way you know, trying to get somebody to give it a chance. And that took 10 years, 10 years of reaching out to people in the basketball community. You know, again, me kind of shaping my argument, uh, refining my research efforts, uh, re you know, refining my message, all that, you know, trying to find new, new ways uh, to finally convince someone to give it a chance. But, and that took 10 years again, before uh, John Mugar and the people at TBT, the basketball tournament finally said, you know, Hey, we, we want to give this a shot. So, they were the ones who, uh, in 2017, said we want to experiment with this on a trial basis. They, they implemented it on their, in their preliminary rounds, and they loved it so much that in 2018, they, they went all in with it across the board, and they've implemented it across the board ever since. And so now that now, again, it took 10 years to take this concept from paper to the court, and now that, that it took that step, uh, now that it wasn't just me speaking on the concept's behalf and the, and the concept itself had a chance to speak for itself, now other leagues and events are taking notice and, and the momentum has just been um, just really been exciting to see where we're seeing more and more leagues and events at all different levels throughout the United States and abroad experimenting with this idea. And again, you think about how amazing it is 
that you go back to June of 2017, this idea had never been implemented. And by February of 2020, at the NBA All-Star Game, now we literally have the best basketball players in the world all on one court playing under this format. Uh, that type to accelerate the progress of this concept, uh, that's just amazing to me, even still today. So from the initial idea in 2007 to the first time we saw it in the TBT uh, preliminary rounds in 2017, it was never experimented in any youth court, any middle school, high school basketball. It was never attempted until we got to the TBT in 2017. That's right. That's, that's incredible, man. That's incredible. The process you go through, the steps to get all the way there. So you say you're a big basketball fan. Although I, 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 will, I will say, I mean, again, the, you think about the, the spirit of playing basketball to a point total, that in itself is not a brand new idea. And that's why, that's again why I see part of the appeal of the Elam ending is that it's not this totally unfamiliar concept. In fact, most of us learn to play basketball without a clock playing to a certain point total. So in that regard, uh, the Elam ending has always been, you know, it's been experimented with on, on playgrounds and driveways all over the world for, for generations. And so, um, you know, in, in that regard, yeah, there, there has been experimentation. Yeah, that's a crazy way to think about it because other than really if you're playing an organized game in a rec or high school or college or pro go on, if you're just playing like three on three, four on four, five on five within your backyard on a, in, a, in a gym, on in a park, you're basically playing the Elam ending. You're playing first to 21, first to 30, first to 15. You're playing that style of basketball without even thinking it. Yeah, and that's, that's again why I think uh, the idea has the ability to take hold and gain acceptance because when you read about the idea or you hear about the idea for the first time, you think, wait a second, what is this? This this sounds like it's totally from out of space. But then you see it in action and you realize, okay, like this, this is a familiar, this is more familiar than we first kind of gave it, gave it credit for. And just the style of play that you see on the court, it looks like real basketball. Whereas when you watch many games now in the NBA, college basketball, whatever it is, and you look at, watch good games come down the stretch and you look at it and it looks nothing like normal basketball. Uh, the Elam ending is able to preserve that, that natural, exciting, fluid and athletic style of play that, that we want to see. It, it's, it does a better job. And I, I'm, I can confidently say it does a better job of that than the time format does. So when you were growing up, did you play basketball in your youth? And if you did, did you ever think about how like, even at that time, thinking about, hey, I wish we kind of had a different ending of this because I grew up playing organized basketball from age 10 to 18. There would be, there would be times annoyed down the clock where you're playing these fast-paced games and, and a lot of intensity, and then it just has these long times of stalling and fouling and timeouts, and it kind of ruins the flow of the game. Well, I did play – I've played all sorts of different sports in youth. Now, I hung up my sneak, my basketball sneakers in fifth grade. Now, if I had known I was going to be, if I was going to grow up to be six, three, I would have stuck with it a little bit longer. I probably would have played through high school. I don't know if I would ever been much of a scorer, but I, I'd get some rebounds for you. But after fifth grade, I just played baseball and football after that. But I mean, I've, I've always liked kind of the behind the, even from a young age, like I've been a huge sports fan, but I've kind of liked the behind the scenes element of yeah. sports. I like playing armchair commissioner. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's a fun thing to try to think about, uh, 
you know, all these kind of classic barroom debates about, you know, different rules for sports and different ways to, to improve the games that we love. Uh, now, I, I can also say I've seen it not from the court itself, not, not on, the, on the court, but uh, I was an athletic director in, in a high school in an earlier chapter of my career. And, you know, when you, when you go to those games, um, you know, you, you see it firsthand of seeing so many of those games come, come down to just this totally warped style of play down the stretch where, again, it becomes so much more about actually manipulating the clock than it is about trying to get scores on offense and trying to get stops on defense. And so when the TBT first took it on in 2018, they had to go for the full tournament, great success in 19, 20, et cetera. Were you surprised at how well it worked so fast? Not surprised. I wasn't surprised at the, how well the format worked. I can tell you, I mean, I did go to the games in person in June of 2017. I was sitting courtside in a, in a quiet gym in Philadelphia when this idea first came to life. And uh, I was for the first, and they had, I think seven, it was a weekend full of, of 11 games. There were seven games back to back on a Saturday, four games on a Sunday. And the first few games were, uh, sound. I mean, that, that's the best way to say it. It's just, you know, you get you had games that were relatively close where the leading team was playing assertively down the stretch, which is something we rarely see. The, the, the trailing team was able to take their time on offense. They were able to uh, lock in on defense. I mean, and it just worked soundly. So that was, that was good. Then by the, by the afternoon of that first day, um, now I was getting more and more excited. We were seeing some really exciting finishes, a game that came down to a sudden death situation, you know, next score wins. People saw how exciting that could be. We saw a game where there was an amazing comeback. A team was down by 13 points after we shut off the clock and they go on a 14, nothing run and take the lead. And then now it's neck and neck the rest of the way, uh, which again, we wouldn't, we would never see that kind of a, a comeback under the time format. So, I mean, by the end of that first day, I was seeing and, and all the onlookers were seeing, you know, what the potential for this idea. So, um, but even then, yeah, you, for me to believe it, for me to believe in it only counts for so much. You know, you have to have people who, who run leagues and events, have, they have to believe in it too. So that's been really exciting uh, to see that gain acceptance, to see it implemented more widely uh, and to see it, you know, at the NBA All-Star Game, that's just that, that's just an ultimate thrill. And again, I think it's just one more step along the way uh, for continued growth. So to the NBA All-Star Game, 2020 comes around. Does the NBA have to reach out to you to ask for permission to use it? Or what was the interaction they had with you with this? It was interesting just kind of the sequence of how it went down. So again, I've, I've been reaching out to the NBA for, you know, since 2007. Yeah. And a lot of the time that's been one way communication, you know, here I am kind of leaving this idea at their doorstep and I don't know where the discussion goes after that. There's been a little bit of two way uh, communication, but again, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not always, I don't always have a seat at the table when they're, when they're having these discussions. But I remember on January 23rd, uh, 2020, I got a call from members of the NBA league office and they told me a few things. One, they said that they, you know, they wanted to thank me for, for my passion and for my innovative ideas for the game. Um, they said that they shared with me that in their discussions with the NBA Players Association, that the players themselves 
really saw a lot of merit in this idea of an untimed finish. And, and that didn't surprise me because again, I think players would love this idea just as much as anyone. I think a lot of stakeholders would love it. Um, I don't think there's really a downside to any type of stakeholder, but, uh, but then they also told me that they were going to implement the idea at the 2020 all-star game in Chicago, that they were going to send me all expenses paid uh, to see it in, in person, which was really exciting. And so, you know, and that they, they were going to have a public announcement soon. Well, what was, and, and they told me at the time that their plan was to get rid of the clock for the whole fourth quarter and that they were going to do uh, leading team plus 35 to uh, try to match kind of the normal scoring rate that you would see yeah. in an all-star game. Well, it was only a few days later, that was a Thursday. And a few days later on a Sunday, that's when Kobe Bryant uh, died in the helicopter crash. And they had not made a public announcement yet about And so uh, by the time they did, which was the following Thursday, January 30th, uh, they had changed the plan. They were going to not use plus 35. They were going to use plus 24 as a tribute to Kobe. Um, and so that was kind of some of the, the behind the scenes of how that, of how that went down, how I found out about it. So the NBA All-Star Game in Chicago comes, you're there, you're probably sticking around for the first three quarters, kind of waiting to see what your finish looks like. We get to the fourth quarter. We, it's a first to 24 points. And Team Giannis, I believe, was up by 11, 12 points going to the fourth quarter. And it felt like on the two sides, Team LeBron, Team Giannis, there was a, like, in terms of strategy, it really, some of the teams weren't sure what to do. You can see with Team Giannis up, I think, 11 or 12, trying to slow down the pace. Team LeBron running fast, a lot of transition points. They eventually got back in the game and won it. Did you notice the strategies, and did you expect, and how did you expect them to react to it? Because this is something they've played before in their life. This, yeah, it was really interesting. And, and what, you know, what I was, what I was um, thinking about in the, the first three quarters there were a few things going on in my mind. The, the one thing I wanted the whole time was I wanted let's I just wanted the margin to be within ten going into the fourth quarter. You know, let's see. You know, if, there, if it's within ten, then we've got some drama going into that final stretch. And and I think it I think it was nine going into okay. the final quarter. I could be wrong about that. But um, the other thing was, you know, I, I I was a little concerned when they changed from a plus thirty five to a plus twenty four. Because I'm thinking, you know, the rate that teams score in an NBA All-Star game, they're going to rack up 24 points in a matter of a couple minutes. And people are going to be, you know, they're going to be left wanting more. And so I'm seeing this incredible scoring rate that we always see in the first three quarters of the game, you know, just racking up points at will. And I'm thinking, oh, no, like this, this plus 24 is not going to be enough. Well, I was wrong about that because the the team like the, the defensive intensity ramped up so much in that fourth quarter that it actually ended up being about 15 minutes worth of game time instead of what you would normally the 12 minutes you would normally see. So actually, you know, plus 35 would have been way too many. And um, but it was interesting to see the strategy. They you know they did a commercial free fourth quarter. Um, Still, but still, teams had the option to call timeout, or they could have subbed on any dead ball. I don't think there—I don't think there was a single substitution the whole fourth quarter. So, yeah, it was—I uh, could be wrong about that, but there, if there were, there weren't many. And uh, so, yeah, it was—I don't think—I um, don't think they had quite anticipated the different scenarios and things. I think they were just going to, you know, go go at it. And again, it was just seeing the best players in the world on one court playing their hardest. 
And that's that's all it takes to make uh, make it exciting. And it certainly was exciting. Yeah, so I went back and rewatched that fourth quarter. Team Giannis was about around 12, 11 points. They had their some of their backups in the game. Team LeBron had all their starters in. Team LeBron had a bunch of run transition, hit a couple of threes, cut the lead to, to six like this. It was eventually five. And then both starters came in and no one, there were no substitutions. But to see 10 of the best players in the world in the last three, four minutes of actual game time, going back and forth playing elite defense, you made guys like James Harden and you know Kemba Walker, who got criticized for the defense all the time, play the defense of their lives. Guys like Kyle Lowry taking charges. Both coaches used the challenge. You single-handedly changed the entire deep defensive ramifications of an all-star game where we're used to seeing 200 points, 190 points, no defense. You completely changed the entire culture of an all-star game in one quarter. Was it like satisfying watching all this thing unfold at the end? It was. And, you know, I was, I was loving the way, you know, the way it was playing out. So, you know, through my eyes, I was, you know, again, I was just loving what I was seeing. I was loving what I was hearing too, because I mean, that was a jam packed house in Chicago. The fans were going crazy. So, I mean, it had, it had all of the feel that you would want um, down the stretch of any game. And so that, that was perfect. Now, again, still, um, you, you never know if, if people watching at home or whatever are seeing it the same way that, that I'm seeing it. So that was really exciting for me to go after the fact and kind of look online and see what the, what the re- reaction was. And I mean, I can safely say, I think this is a, actually a low estimate, you know, 90% of the Twitter uh, feedback was positive. And you, someone you told me, see that. I'm sorry. You rarely see any. Well, yeah. Somebody, somebody, uh, somebody told me once it, it would be hard to get 90% of the people on Twitter to, to like uh, free beer and ice cream, you know, so and for 90% of the people, to like this new uh, new concept for basketball and to accept this new concept for basketball was really, that's really an accomplishment. So I was very proud of that. And again, I, you know, the, the thing, the thing about this whole journey, and again, this journey goes back a long time. Anytime this, this project reaches a milestone like that, it's exciting for two reasons. One, because I, I get to look back and be reflective and think about and be proud of how much progress this project has made and, how, and all the hard work and, and, and just belief that I had in it up to this point. That's one reason, but it's also exciting for another reason because I get to look ahead and think about the future possibilities for this format. And when, uh, when it had such a great, great success at NBA All-Star Game in 2020, I knew there's, there's a bright future for this format. We, we have not seen the Elam ending for the last time. Yep, so we can't mention the ending of the All-Star Game without mentioning the actual ending of the All-Star Game. So after Anthony Davis's anticlimactic free throw to end, probably the most climactic All-Star Game in any sport ever, there were some people, and you mentioned the 90%, some people who weren't complete fans of a free throw to end the game. Your thoughts on that, and do you see any modifications or changes to the current Elam ending? Great question. And again, you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody for – criticizing or scrutinizing the, the format, I think that's how the idea gets better. So I say the you know, more scrutiny, the better. Let's make this concept as good as it can be. Now, on that particular, you know, that particular element of the game ending on a free throw, the, the first thing I say to someone who criticizes the Elam ending for seeing a game, you know, decided by a free throw, I say, well, hold on a second. If you don't like seeing games decided by a free throw, 
then you should love the Elam ending. You know, the, sure. the, the, the traditional format, that's the norm for games to be decided by free throws. And under the Elam ending, it's, it's the exception. And so, you know, we've seen in TBT, I think it's somewhere between 15 and 20% of games end with a free throw. And to me, I'm, I'm willing to, uh, you know, I'm willing to live with that percentage to accept that small percentage to see, you know, again, many other finishes are going to be more exciting than what we're used to seeing under the regular format. Um, Because under the, under the regular format, you know, 90, 90, 99%, over 99% of games end with just, you know, some sort of a meaningless possession or a missed shot, something like that. What many people would call an anticlimactic finish. So to go to drop that from, you know, 90, or, or let's flip it around the other way. We only see about 1% of games under the regular format end with a meaningful made field goal, 1%. And under the Elam ending, we see about 80 to 85% of games end with a meaningful field goal. So to go from 1% to 80 to 85%, I'm like, hey, that, that's pretty good. Like, you know, some, some people are just tough to please. Now, but again, hey, I'm, I, I get greedy too. I think, well, hey, is there a way to... Uh, modify this further. I've heard some ideas thrown around there uh, to, that would absolutely mandate that games can't end with a free throw, but everyone that I've heard would have unintended consequences that I think would outweigh the benefit. So I think if you get too cute with it, you're going to introduce a lot of kind of junk strategies and things like that, where it's just, it's just not going to be a net benefit. So um, for me, again, to go from 1% up to 80 to 85%, I think that's a good improvement. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. So the takes or opinions I've heard is that, you know, you think of some of the best shots in college basketball history, you think of the Chris Jenkins buzzer beater against Carolina in the 2016 tournament. The, the, the argument is it takes away stuff like that because if every game ends on a buzzer beater, then it kind of takes away the meaningful shots like that one and the Jordan Poole uh, buzzer beater for Michigan, University of Michigan's Houston and, you know, half court buzzer beaters we see every couple of years in the tournament. Your thoughts on that kind of taking away the aspect of the buzzer beater? So uh, a few things you mentioned there, the, uh, the half court buzzer beaters, we would still get those at the end of the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, you know, when time's running out. So we'd still have those fun buzzer beaters. But to me, when the game is on the line, I want to see both teams at their best. I want to see the offense taking their best shot rather than some kind of a sloppy, hopeless shot like that. I think about, I, I think about it in baseball, you know, to do we, we, cause in basketball, we see players taking these desperate, hopeless shots when the game's on the line. I think about what that would be like in baseball. It would be like seeing Mike Trout step up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth and have to bat left-handed. And it's like, well, I, I guess that's cool if he gets a hit, but I think I'd rather just see Mike Trout at his best. Yep. And so for me, it's the same in basketball. Like, I don't want to see LeBron take a half court shot. I don't want to, I want to see LeBron take his best shot. And um, you also mentioned Chris Jenkins uh, buzzer beater in the 2016 NCAA championship game. You know, I think that's a perfect example there. You think about the circumstances there. That was a tie game when he released that shot. So let's think about what's at stake there. You know, if he makes that shot, which he did, then Villanova wins right then and there. But if he misses the shot, well, okay, everybody, settles in for five minutes of overtime who knows if the game reaches the same level of excitement because more often than not overtime periods do not go down to the buzzer okay now let's think about the elam ending you get many games where it comes down to a sudden death situation like that where if you make that shot 
you win right then and there. But if you miss the shot, you don't get to settle in for five minutes of overtime. You got to get back immediately and play defense for your life because the game could end on the very next possession. So even those situations we see under the, under the current format, which again, those are great. I love them too, but I think even many of those can be enhanced uh, by the Elam ending. And I'll, I'll make even a couple more points here. One is that under the regular format where we get those, uh, you know, those rare instances, again, it's only about 1% of the time where a game ends with the meaningful made basket. Um, you know, the circumstances finally align. We should we should get just a, a totally uninhibited, ex, you know, excited celebration. Even many of those situations are spoiled because the officials say, "Okay, you got to stop celebrating. You know, go back to your bench. We have to go to the monitor and make sure the shot was released oh, yeah. on time." And it dampens the celebration. With the eliminating, it takes out all the guesswork there uh, because you know the, the, you you know once the ball goes through the net that the game is over and just go wild. So, and that's what we've seen at the, in the Elam ending at TBT is that, cause I try to go to as many of those games and attend in person as I can. Cause I, I think there are some things that you can't measure. You have to be in the gym and, and kind of get the feel of the atmosphere. And we've seen a lot of those games that come down to a sudden death situation. Even a lot of games that are decided by four points or more. When that shot goes through the net, you still get that look, that sound, that feel of a buzzer beater. And so that's why I always say about the Elam ending, it, it allows us to keep and enhance the things that we already love about the game of basketball, but get rid of the things that we don't enjoy. And one more thing I'll say about that is that, you yeah. know, like, again, I agree. There are many uh, great shots in the history of basketball. I've, I've enjoyed those too, those buzzer, buzzer beater moments, but you have to think when, when people, cause, cause people, yeah, they'll come at me with that argument. They'll pick out a few, um, great finishes from basketball and they'll act like they they just can just rest their case on that. But think about it. They're, they're picking those games out of a sample of something like 50,000 uh, NBA games of all time, you know, a couple hundred thousand college basketball games of all time. And, you know, picking out a few good, good ones out of that sample. It's, it's well, sure. I mean, if you, if you implemented the Elam ending for 50,000 NBA games or, or 200,000 college basketball games, yeah, you're going to find many more. Uh, games that have incredible and memorable finishes. Yeah, so I could say the two best endings I've seen to any basketball game in terms of back and forth things was the All-Star game last year under your rules and game seven of the 2016 finals, which felt like an Elam ending game because it was the defense playing back and forth. If you were playing a first in 93, it would have been exactly what that was. What do you think the future of the Elam ending is? Where does it go from here? You've already got the TBT. You've got the NBA All-Star game. Is it the G League? Is it NCAA in-conference tournaments and or tournaments in the preseason? Is it beyond there? Where is the next step for the amending? Great question. And I, I, I would love to be able to give you a definitive answer there. So as I answer this question, understand I'm only speaking for myself and, and I'm doing a lot of, uh, you know, hopeful speculating. I can't, I can't speak for anyone else, but what I, I think there are many great settings uh, to experiment with this format. I think, you know, you look at AAU tournaments or, or any kind of setting where you have many games scheduled back to back in the same venue on the same day where overtime or just drawn out finishes can really wreck the whole schedule. Eliminating just from a practical standpoint, uh, keeps, thing on, keeps things on track, keeps the schedule on track. I think there's a lot of benefit there at a level like that. But, you know, you look at the, 
places like in college basketball, I think the NIT that they're, you know, they, they are known for experimenting with rules. Uh, many of those which go on to full implementation, whether it's NIT or the CBI or CIT, one of those postseason tournaments, I think would be a great setting for the NBA, something like the G league or the summer league, or they've, they've considered a, uh, an in-season tournament. I think all those would be great settings, especially that in-season tournament, because I yeah. think you'd have to do something to kind of, you have to distinguish it from regular season play. Make it. You have to do something to make it special. So I think Elam Indian would be a great idea there. And then also one thing that I think is really exciting setting uh, to help this grow throughout the world are different international leagues and events. In 2020, for the first time, we saw the Elam Indian implemented by a FIBA league. Uh, that was the Canadian Elite Basketball League, and they were they were very happy with how it, how it looked. And I think they they intend to keep implementing it going forward. But you know, there are countless international leagues and events uh, that can keep latching onto this idea and just keep keep growing and growing. Yeah, no, the in-season tournament's coming. It's been rumored to Adam Silver since 2016 around there. It's coming in the next five years. And, you know, you mentioned they're going to have to get games done fast. They got all 30 teams at a tournament. They can't have a game going to double, triple overtime, like, and then stall the entire rest of the day having to delay games. So, if that tournament does come, then I could easily see them using the Elam ending. I'll send you out on this, a non-basketball question. A lot of people don't know you've been a grounds crew member for the Cincinnati Reds for over 15 years. Tell me how you got started with that and why you've continued to stick around with all this time. Yeah, so, I mean, when I was younger uh, in college, you know, I guess just right after high school and in college, I had uh, every summer job you could think of. I mean, I, I was a grocery bagger. Um, I worked in a video store. You probably don't even know what that what that is. Um, the uh, I worked for a moving company. I don't I don't recommend that to anybody. That, that's the toughest job I ever had. I, I I was a pizza delivery guy. All those sorts of things. Well, one summer uh, I decided, well, you know, let's try something different this summer. And uh, I reached out to the head groundskeeper for the Dayton Dragons because I was attending the University of Dayton. You know, I was. Uh, and reached out to the Dayton Dragons, a minor league baseball team, asked if they needed somebody on their grounds crew, and sure enough, they did. So I, I worked there for three seasons, and after that, I thought, you know what, I think I'm ready for the big leagues. And so I reached they out called, to the Cincinnati. The big leagues. That's right. So I reached out to the Cincinnati Reds head groundskeeper and you know, told him I had some experience, asked him if he needed anybody. Uh, it, took, it took a while to hear back from him, but uh, sure enough, I got a shot in 2006, and started working there. I've worked there ever since. And some those are some of my best friends who worked down there with me. And uh, I mean, I love I love the game of baseball. Anyway, I'm, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to be at the ballpark anyway. Many times watching my Reds. So hey, I might as well have the best seat in the house while I do it. Working on the grounds crew. So uh, that that's uh, something I really enjoy. And even though my my career has taken me now to Central Indiana and, and out of Southwest Ohio, I still work a little bit uh, here or there on weekends and. Um, it's something I don't, I don't think I'm going to give up anytime soon. Do you have any good stories, like player interactions at all? You know, you're on the ground, you're on the field, any interaction with any players that have a good story with? Um, so it's interesting. Some of the, some of the more interesting interactions aren't necessarily with, with Reds players or baseball players at all. Sometimes it has to do with the special events that they have down there. I know, uh, one time they, they used to host uh, a game, an annual game called the Civil Rights Game, and they would have different uh, dignitaries down there. I mean, people like Muhammad Ali and, and Bill Cosby. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, Hank Aaron. 
Um, and one, in one particular instance, they, um, they had Sugar Ray Leonard there. And I remember after the game, we, we would normally just start our post-game work right after the game, but they, this was going to be, they were going to have fireworks. And so we needed to wait until the fireworks were over to start our work. So we were just kind of hanging around in the dugout and, you know, sitting around looking up at the sky, watching these fireworks. And I looked down right next to me and Sugar Ray Leonard is sitting right next to me. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is kind of a cool, a cool thing. It's something that you wouldn't normally get as an opportunity in many jobs to, to sit around and uh, watch fireworks with Sugar Ray Leonard. So that was that was one memory. I remember that's, uh, that was pretty cool. That's definitely unique. Uh, last one, last thing. Who are you predicting to win the NBA All Star Game? The East All Stars or the West All Stars? Well, keep in mind that they so they figure out who is going to be in the All Star Game based on conference. Yeah. But as There's, far as I like, team, a, I don't think they're having a draft this year. I think they're just doing East and West, so they don't mix it up. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, on yeah they're having they're having a draft. I don't know if it's okay. next week or the week are after they, that. Yeah. Okay, I thought this year they were just doing East and West. So. So which captain is it going to be? Is it going to be Team LeBron or Team Kevin Durant? Yeah, well, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to see him at the moment. Uh, you'll hear as we record this podcast. Um, you know, LeBron's much healthier than Kevin Durant is, yeah. but by the time March seventh rolls around and once they pick their teams, it'll, it'll be hard to see. But um, you know, I I always am very curious who's going to put the ball through the net to. Uh, to win the game uh, last year was Anthony Davis. That was really cool uh, to see someone as, as accomplished as he is to win the game. I'd be over the moon to see LeBron or Kevin Durant make that winning shot. I mean, either, either one of those would be really cool to see make the eliminating winning shot. I have a feeling this year it's going to be Kyrie Irving to end it. He just seems like this. he's been pretty healthy this year, has, has had a decent year. I could see him having – he's a pretty clutch player. Him or Damian Lillard, one of those two, I think could – Know, have that last shot that Elam ending to the 2021 NBA All Star game on March 7th that you'll see Nick Elam's created ending take full height for the second straight year. Nick, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about your career and the Elam ending. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you to Nick Elam for coming on the podcast to talk about the Elam ending and his career, his entire run from 2007 all the way up to now with watching. His idea take place in the NBA All-Star Game. Make sure to tune in to the NBA All-Star Game on Saturday, March 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Next up on the Harrison Vatnick podcast coming up, we're going to have Jim Aiello from the Indy Star, Missouri Tigers graduate, going to talk some Carson Wentz trade, going to talk about his experience at Mizzou and some more indie sports stuff. So make sure to stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Harrison Vatnick podcast. See ya.